Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Joseph Satra, for the introduction to today's guest, Safna Shah, founder of Red Giraffe. Red Giraffe makes pre-seed investments in startups in the retail industry, including retail tech, marketplaces, brands, and other consumer sectors. Some of her investments include The Wing, Find Mine, Robin, and Swoonery. She's also the founder of Retail X Series, an ecosystem for retail startups in New York and around the US. This was a fascinating conversation where we discuss what it was like founding a B2C company and a B2B company, the opportunities in retail innovation, and the changes in consumer behavior due to COVID. Without further ado, here's Sapna. Sabna, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So like, so I'd love to start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to retail? Yeah, that's a great question. I really fell into retail sort of serendipitously. Um, when I was in business school, I ended up doing my summer internship at The Gap. And I realized and you know, this was a time where Mickey Drexler was the CEO there, and the the whole country was doing kind of khaki swing. Everyone was wearing the khakis, and swing dancing was a thing. It was like a great time to be at the Gap. It uh, they they had just launched e-commerce, one of the first specialty retailers to do so. It was a great time to be at the Gap, and I fell in love with retail and what I learned that summer is the thing that really excites me about it is why people buy. Consumer behavior to me is so interesting. How to get people to buy something, why they buy one thing versus the other, what's going to be a bestseller, what's not, how people choose to spend their money on um, clothing versus accessories versus home versus vacations has always been fascinating to me. And so since then, which was back in 1997, I've basically been in and around retail for my whole career. That's awesome. So almost the human psychology element and why and why people buy, uh, that, that was certainly a, a big part of the reason, which I, I also agree is very, very fascinating. And um, 
I know you you went on to found two companies, both within retail. And what I think is most interesting is one of them was on the B2B side and the other one was very consumer facing. I would love to just learn about maybe some of your learnings from the, both those experiences that really helped shape how you analyzed opportunities. Yeah, it's really funny until you actually sort of said that I hadn't really realized that one was B2B and one was um, consumer facing. I had thought of them that way. Um, but yes, they were. And there were some very different um, kind of learnings um, on that front. I always say on the consumer side of things, um, the the company I started was in menswear um, and it was called Mind the Chap. And, you know, one of the things my co-founder and I would kind of laugh about is that it was always two, you know, one step forward, two steps back. So I really know everything that you can do incorrectly in e-commerce and in consumer facing business. I know how to buy ads that don't work. I know how to have inventory problems. I know how hard it is to hire because, you know, there was every mistake in the book and I think we made it, um, which is great as a learning lesson, it was not great at the time, to be honest, but as a learning lesson, it's really, it's really helpful to have had those experiences as I'm working with very early stage founders in direct consumer companies who, you know, are potentially about to make those same mistakes. And so um, it's been really helpful to say, like, let me just tell you that that 100% doesn't work. And neither do these three other ways that I've all tried. But here are some, you know, and here are some things that did work and didn't work for me, even though that was quite, um, quite a while ago. So things have changed. Um, so that that has been really helpful. And on the B2B side, you know, having done B2B sales, I realize how hard it is, right? It, it's I think it's, you know, any enterprise company, any, any startup that is doing b2b sales those hardest things is to get that first client that second client you know to not have churn um deal with long sales cycles develop a sales pipeline really as a founder get good at sales i'd never done sales before i'd launched my company um and it really was eye-opening um and i think kind of that has really helped um help me understand, you know, even the problems that startups, uh, B2B startups have right from the beginning, and hopefully to help them with some advice on that front. So when you're analyzing a B2B startup, just knowing now how important sales, the sales piece is, is that maybe one of the first um, initial things you might talk about with an entrepreneur in terms of what what the actual sales cycle or sales process is? Yeah, well, actually, the first thing I would say when talking to an entrepreneur is who's going to do the sales. A lot of early stage entrepreneurs really at the very beginning are like, I hate sales. Um, so I'm going to hire somebody. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're the founder. You are going to do sales. And that's kind of the first piece that kind of gives you a sense of, okay, can this founder do it? Are they excited to, to learn how to do the sales, to go and talk to clients and, you know, deal with, you know, particularly in retail, the sales cycles are so long with the enterprise size customers um, and developing that pipeline is hard. And yes, eventually you're going to have a sales team, but in the beginning, it's all you or you and your co-founders. And I think when, you know, as I'm meeting with early stage companies who are B2B, that's kind of the first thing I look at for them is to say, you know, are you ready for what the sales process is going to bring you? And are you willing to do it? 
That's a really great point. One of maybe a job of a founder that might be a bit overlooked from the very beginning, you're, you're also, you know, the chief sales officer. One thing that I really wanted to discuss with you was about, you know, drop shipping, cause we haven't really talked about it yet on this show. And I know, I believe that you, you made a couple um, investments on the, on the infrastructure side of drop shipping. I'd love to know what you think some of the effects of drop shipping that, that you've seen for brands. But drop shipping has been one of those things that's really helped the growth of new brands because they can really widen their distribution and particularly with the with the especially this year the insane growth of marketplaces that any brand can get on if they're willing to drop drop ship to the end customer you know presumably that helps brands kind of build awareness and audience um and helps and and this sort of drop shipping capability really helps them reach people that might not have ever found their website or ever found their store um it is really great i think for brands to now be able to have multiple distribution channels particularly in covid right now you know when stores you know you're not going to get wholesale accounts you're seeing a lot of the department stores and the classic places that used to really be strong um, at wholesale you don't have those anymore so this is kind of an another opportunity for brands um, to really get direct directly to a variety of consumers and it's a trusted kind of stamp of approval so you know if there are so many marketplaces i mean we could probably just have an entire conversation about marketplaces but um marketplaces curated aggregators you know what we used to call department stores but that are now all online like a vera shop doe which i'm an investor in the vertical which is a new one folklore the yes accessory junkie i mean there's so many that um, are out there and some of them actually, uh, a few do hold the inventory, but most are on a dropship model. And that gives brands this kind of great outlet for finding lots of different kind of niche customers who are looking for their particular product. And they're not having to do all that cost of acquisition and the marketplace um, is helping to get that, you know, that CAC down for them. So I think it's been really great for brands. I think it gives them more opportunities um, to reach very different audiences than they might have otherwise. Um, having said that, you know, I think we're still early in, in the world of drop shipping. And I think there's still, um, you know, it's, it's still not as easy and you don't get as much of your cust customer data. There's a lot, um, there's a lot that maybe a brand might not know. Um, but I think it's, very positive for them in the early days. I totally agree. I think that what's what's been interesting is a shift from um, like the wholesale online retail model, which obviously still very very much exists, but um, with the drop shipping, you know, much more marketplace type mile um, mar marketplace type. It it um, it downplays the risk that the actual marketplace has because they're not actually having to buy the inventory, right? And as well as it gives them more opportunity to actually feature more brands than on the actual platform itself. So I think that it's really interesting. Which is a pro and a con, right? Because um, the whole point, like, you know, the whole point of marketplaces is to create some level of curation and and appeal to a particular customer and, and dropshipping makes it easy to go past that level of curation and, and get into the I am in a marketplace of everything, which is obviously, um, you know, there's Amazon and others out there that are already the marketplaces of everything, but it is a great opportunity for marketplaces to grow. I mean, how do you think about 
you know, the future, just thinking about curation, um, you know, you can go on Amazon. There's so many listings whenever you uh, search for anything. And there's just so much unbelievable amount of choice. And how do you think about the future in terms of maybe less choice for consumers, but it's much more to their needs? They don't then there's almost less friction because uh, they don't have to search. I think that is like one of the silver bullets that we're going to see happen. I am. And if, honestly, if you find a company that's doing that right now, like, let me know. (laughs) No, I mean, really, it's all about personalization, right? I mean, Amazon is great if you know exactly what you want. I want this Yeti microphone. I want it in blue and I want it tomorrow. That is a perfect use case for Amazon. I want to go shopping is a terrible use case for Amazon. Um, I want to see what's out there is a terrible use case, right? Um, Impulse purchasing terrible use case. But if there were, and I think that's what some of these curated marketplaces are trying to do. They're trying to say, you know, for this type of consumer um, who wants to look for brands that align with their ethics and their values, and maybe they are looking for sustainable, maybe they're looking for female founded brands, maybe they're looking for only really cool digitally native brands, only technology, you know, those kinds of marketplaces, I think are doing that job of curation kind of manually right now, but even that is not perfect, right? And so I think this layer of personalization that has to be layered on top of that, where really the marketplace or or wherever you're shopping, knows who you are and really presents a small set of options and not 700 search results. And so I think that can be done either by being very niche oriented in a marketplace that's really showcasing a few brands that are really relevant to you or in a larger context, whether it's a store or a brand uh, or a marketplace or what um, a department store is you know some sort of personalization layer or client service that really knows who you are and says you don't need to look at these 700 pair of boots we know you're gonna like one of these five and that i think we're not there yet that's a really really great point what are some new consumer habits that you've seen develop during covid that maybe has sped up the penetration of e-commerce Obviously, you know, I think COVID has really accelerated. I think everything we read, it's really accelerated um, e-commerce. But I think the, the, the things that are really changing the way I think we'll see retail develop is one, Gen Z. Um, so, you know, Gen Z is just kind of in their early 20s, like just graduating from college, you know, starting on their kind of adult life. And it's a really different from everything we know, a really different cohort um, than millennials. Um, Very interested in sustainability and shopping your values, actually more likely to go to a store if there was an experience in the store, Uh, not to like go buy something and take it home, but to actually go with friends or because there's some sort of interesting pop-up and they're offering some sort of experience that is unique. But other than that, they're buying a lot more online and certainly much more on mobile. They're mobile first generation. And I think that is really gonna change everything that we see from the brands they shop to when they go to stores versus what they buy online, how much they buy, because again, the sustainability angle um, and you know, how long they keep things and, you know, less about maybe fast fashion and more about, you know, being kind to the environment. So I think that is going to be 
something, you know, and, and this generation was highly affected by COVID. I mean, we all were, but, you know, in a formative way. And I think that is going to be kind of a lasting effect um, for, for that generation. But I also think, you know, I, as I think about remote work as well, you know, one of the big questions in my mind is, do people get back when they do get back to the office? And I have to believe that at some point we'll all get back to offices and meeting in person um, and having dinners in restaurants. Do you go back to wearing those nicer clothes or has just the world really become even more casualized? And, you know, which has huge implications for the apparel sector, for footwear, for accessories, for co color cosmetics, really it's hard to see that everyone goes back to the way they were and that people are really wearing like more jacketed looks, more dresses and skirt suits and men's suits and dress, you know, slightly more formal, where, which was already a trend that was happening pre-COVID. And I think, you know, it's going to be really hard to get people back into those clothes. That's fascinating. I don't think I've had yet another investor uh, guest on the show talk about the effects of COVID about when we go back to somewhat normal where folks are still going back to are able to go back to work either if it's for you know uh, two or three times a week do you go back to wearing the nicer clothes or the clothes that you previously did like what are the actual long-lasting effects of your uh, wardrobe being changed or, or disrupted due to COVID? i know gen z they're going to be the first you know mobile first generation here in the us uh, but i'd love to explore what that means or what brands need to do in order to adapt to that? I would almost say that there are brands that already are like a Patagonia, for example, right? Is very aligned with um, sort of Gen Z values. But the brands that aren't, I just don't know how relevant they can get, right? So, um, you know, when when we think about kind of the looking at kind of sustainability, kind of ethically made, you know, no sweatshop labor, you know, sustainable fabrics, um, recyclable clothes and footwear. When we think about kind of the things you put in your home and not buying things that throw, that you just throw away. I think it's a lot of new brands. I, I don't see a lot of these old legacy brands being so relevant to the Gen Z consumer. And I don't know how much they can actually change their branding and their, you know, the way they do business. And I think we're, we, we were starting to see a lot of that even kind of before COVID and, and for the last kind of five to 10 years where the, you know, shopping malls, the kind of traditional shopping mall that I grew up in that I went to all the time with my friends in high school is not a place that kids go. And those brands are not relevant to them. Like, you know, I mentioned that I worked at Gap in the 90s. It was a great time to be at the Gap. It was like it's heyday. Well, it's that heyday has come and gone, you know, and, and my kids wouldn't be caught dead wearing Gap. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think, I think we're going to see actually like a real shift. And we're going to see more and more of these kind of old legacy retailers declare bankruptcy because they can't shift to the changing tides. And I think there's only a few that will still be relevant. And I think, you know, a great example um, besides Patagonia is like Nike is still really meaningful um, to younger consumers. Um, and I think part of that is their branding and messaging and they, they've been able to kind of turn the ship a little bit, but will it continue to be when you start to see young, smaller brands have completely sustainable sneakers, 
right, that can be recycled and remade into another pair of sneakers, you know, what will Gen Z choose? I'm not sure. Do you worry at all with these up and coming brands that since due to COVID and they're not able to, uh, for the brands, particularly those that are in retail that are uh, still um, aspiring, that consumers aren't able to try on whether it's an outfit shoes um in apparel or um or you know uh, it could be also in like the, the food and beverage space but you're not able to actually try out or test the product um or do you feel like consumers are now so used to purchasing online and returning and that there really isn't much friction there yeah i think there's still a lot of friction in the returns process i think it is getting easier and there are lots of companies that are trying to make um returns easier for people like happy returns which is in shopping malls and you can actually just go drop it off instead of trying to figure it all out and put it in a box and you know print out the label and all that kind of stuff but even that is friction right like it's not like it just disappears magically from your front door it's you still have to do something so um i think the friction for consumers is is still there and and i think consumers are still looking for something better but i think the answer is actually going to be on the front end of that uh, because while this is a consumer problem it's much more of a retail and brand problem because you know apparel for example is like 40 percent returns a lot of the shoe brands have like 70 percent returns like that is a that's a huge carbon footprint that's terrible like if it's too many boxes going back and forth and ups and all of that and b it takes a lot of effort to restock all that stuff um and a lot th- a lot of things can't be restocked and so they just get thrown out so it's not a good situation um, for the brands and retailers and i think a lot of the try on and fit technology that exists today and there are a lot of them are not exactly where we need them to be, but I think they will get better. And I think people will get better at understanding, you know, like that their personal avatar looks like this in this shoe or that, or in this outfit, or, you know, that this duvet cover looks great on this bed in your room because you're using more, um, AR, VR, you're using fit technologies, you're building avatars, you know your measurements, like some combination of these things will eventually get there. And I think we're starting to get closer to that, but we haven't found kind of that magic bullet because there's still consumer friction on the tech side of things. So even though they're great, you know, options for fit tech, if you're willing to put in as a consumer, a lot of effort, you're still gonna have to put in a lot of effort. And you're kind of like, should I put in that effort or do I just buy it in two sizes and I'll just return the other one? So I think we're getting there. We're not quite there yet, but I think we will. And I think that will actually change this equation um, quite a bit. Got it. No, that's that's fascinating. So you've been a prolific angel investor now for quite a few years. And um, what are some differences entrepreneurs should be aware of when accepting money from angels versus VC funds? I love this question. This is a great question. Um, I think, especially at early stage, you know, I invest at pre-seed. Founders really haven't raised a lot of money and they don't know the differences um, kind of between the two. And so I I spend a lot of time talking to founders about this, actually. And so one, I, I would say it depends on the type of angel. And I will broadly bucket angels into people like myself who really I'm doing this as my kind of main gig. And then 
other angels for whom this is a little bit of a side hustle or they're sporadically, you know, a little bit more tourists um, and invest kind of randomly. But the one thing that's common with both kinds of angels is that angels don't have LPs. Angels don't write investment memos. They don't have partner meetings. And so their process, it can be a lot faster. A lot of times you hear founders say, you know, I had this first meeting and they wrote me a check right there. Um, and that it's such a fast process and it can be really easy. It can feel really easy to get a check out of an angel versus, you know, a VC who has much more of a process. They have LPs that they're reporting to. They have an investment thesis that is, you know, that they have to go back and talk to their kind of um, team about. And there may be that you didn't meet the partner to begin with and you met somebody more junior and then it gets kicked up to the partner. So it's a longer process. It's a more formal process and with diligence. And I would say angels much faster. They do less diligence. They don't have others that they're kind of working with unless it's an angel group. And once they are talking to you, they might want to be more involved. They want, they might say, you know, the angel might be somebody who's worked in the industry and can open doors for you and say, I can introduce you to this person, this person, this person, and I can introduce you to three other people who, you know, you might, who might want to invest. And that might all happen in the first meeting. And that is definitely not typical of the way a VC meeting would work um, in the first meeting. So, um, you know, I think the angel process can be a lot more, in some ways, a lot more of about a personal relationship um, and something that really becomes that really becomes a very quick process. But even so, I think that the thing that is the same is that your investors are your investors until you exit. And so that can be five years, that can be seven years, that can be 15 years. And you, so you still want to have and build that relationship with angels, which means even though you might get a check really quickly, you still want to get to know them. You still want to make sure you do your diligence on the angel. Because a lot of times I hear from founders that the people who wrote the smallest checks, the angels who wrote the smallest checks in their round are like the, the most, um, you know, the, the ones that ask for the most information, the ones that email them all the time, the ones that are like, how come I haven't gotten a business update a week later after the last business update? So you really want to get to know them because angels come in all kinds of flavors and sizes. And the thing to know is that angels might also not follow on in investing. They might just only write one check. It might be a small check, it might be a big check. Um, you know, I think it's just as important for founders to ask angels those questions. I always tell founders to ask me, you know, at the end, at the end of our first conversation, if things are going well, they should be asking me, what size check do you write? Do you follow on? What kinds of diligence do you do? You know, would you invest in this stage of company that we're in? Like those, those questions that you research about VCs, sometimes that information is not available publicly about angels. And therefore you need to ask the questions very directly early on. One thing that stood out to me was was actually being proactive in terms of asking angels uh, if they do follow on because as you as you pointed out many angels don't follow on but um and vcs of course on their strategy um they uh they do uh follow on when appropriate or 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 when they can and, and exercise that pro rata but it's but in 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 the angels case it's it's a bit more um unknown right yeah and and when you think about it angels don't have like a follow-on fund they don't have a fund so if you're at if you're raising a follow-on round and that angel has just you know kind of 
invested in like some real estate project and doesn't have any free cash to kind of follow on, even if they say they might have followed on in other times, they might just not have the money to do it right now. So it's definitely something worth asking. No, that's no, that's, that's really helpful. So walk me through as an angel, walk me through your uh, due diligence process and has this process changed or become more challenging during COVID? So for me personally, the process hasn't changed really since COVID. Um, even prior to COVID, I had invested in founders that I'd only met virtually. So I, you know, I was kind of used to this process of pitching virtually and meeting them and Zooming and whatever. So my process hasn't really changed. Um, I would say it has taken a little bit longer um, during COVID um, only because I think the founders have found that, you know, they are trying to juggle a lot more and VCs are asking for more meetings with those founders. And so they're actually in the middle of a fundraise. It's not that I'm holding it up necessarily, but you know, it's taking, it's taking longer to go through diligence. So my process really starts, you know, with kind of the founder founding team and founder market fit. I think I'm unusual as an angel in that I only invest in one sector, right? I invest in the future of retail. And because of that, I have a thesis on kind of where things are going. And and if that market size and what that market that that founder might be playing in is sort of not a fit for them where they don't either come from the industry, they don't have the personal pain point, they don't understand kind of back to our B2B discussion, like what it's going to take to sell to Macy's. Um, that's kind of the first thing I'm looking at. Um, and, you know, at pre-seed, there isn't a lot there, you know, there's not a lot of metrics. So kind of looking at that founder market fit, kind of their ability to um, execute on whatever that plan is and whatever their business model is and you know how much resilience they're going to have in getting through those tough early times i think is kind of the number one thing that i'm kind of testing in multiple through probably multiple conversations the other thing i look for is kind of some level of proof point right so how much work has the founder done on proof meaning if it's a d2c brand even if you haven't launched it have you done some research do you know you know what potential customers you know have you gotten feedback from customers? Have you done a survey, that kind of stuff? Or, you know, have you talked to potential clients of a B2B product and said, like, is this something that would solve your problem? And I think a lot of founders at the early stage don't do that. And because and, they just think, well, we're pre-seed, like we're, we're going to get there. And I, in my diligence process, like having some, being able to see some of those proof points, um, even if they're not an actual product or revenues is really, really important. And then Last, but definitely not least, is I'm always asking kind of what is the unique differentiation for this product, service, software, whatever it is. And this is particularly true in D2C brands. Um, you know, if you don't have a completely unique product and you don't have a unique way to get to market, how are you going to compete, right? Um, what What is, in particular with D2C brands, I'm asking this about customer acquisition. What is your unique path to customer acquisition? It cannot, the answer cannot be Facebook, Facebook and Instagram ads. Um, and those are kind of the three things I'm testing in diligence in the conversations that I'm having with people. 
And then of course, the last thing I do, because I used to be an investment banker way back in the day, is I'm always look, looking for a financial model um, and the assumptions behind that model. Thanks so much for for walking us through that. Since since your focus is future retail and, and, and you are thesis driven, how do you break down, I guess, opportunities or focus areas within future retail, which, um, you know, massive, massive category, um, if you if, if you could even call it a category. But how do you how do you break down opportunities within future retail? Because I know you I know you invest in uh, the B2B, anywhere from the B2B tech stack or w- within retail all the way to, you know, the brands, the brand side and, and actually physical products. That's a great question. I guess the answer is I'm interested kind of in all of those things. Um, but I would say, you know, there are certain, at certain times there are certain trends, right? Like even before COVID wellness and self-care was becoming a really big category. And you can look at that in terms of sort of the health category, which I don't invest in like pharma and biotech and that kind of stuff. Or you can think about it in the form of like a journaling subscription company, which I did invest in, right? So, you know, I kind of look at these sort of macro trends and how they're affecting retail and trying to find those sort of spaces in which um, I want to play. And so, you know, another great example of that is right uh, is menopause, which is like a really underserved market in lots of different ways, but there's definitely a retail component. Um, you know, whether that's skincare or supplements or, you know, hair care, you know, there are obviously there's a medical side to that as well, but I don't care. I'm not going to invest in that side of it, but there are definitely kind of these sort of overarching trends I'm looking at. So at any given time, there are a couple of things I'm particularly looking for and the wellness and menopause were kind of great examples of that right now with COVID, I think the retail tech, um, boom is just about to restart, whether it's contactless commerce, personalization we talked about, which I think has to, has to happen, fit, you know, all of that, you know, bringing for these legacy retailers, really creating what is truly omni-channel, which they have never really done in the past. You know, what does the store of the future look like? So, you know, I think some of these focuses within retail for me are constantly changing uh, based on what the broader environment looks like. But that's not to say somebody might not come up tomorrow with a video-based shopping company and I'm like, ah, that really wasn't something I was looking for right now, but that sounds amazing. And, you know, and here we are, you know, here I am investing in it. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of having sort of this overall sort of trends within retail and then a little bit of serendipity. Yeah, no, that's a great, um, I think um, when I had uh, Vincent Diallo on, he said, uh, you know, we we have our thesis, but we also love to be surprised. So I think yeah, that's that a great is, way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um. So that's uh serendipity surprise. Um. I think that's that's that, that that's great. You know, I know another one of your focuses is um, investing in female and uh, in underrepresented founders. And you know, we've talked on the show quite a bit um, on the on 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 more so the institutional side from uh, venture capitalists about how if. There is going to be real change. It has to come from the top. It has to come from LP, LPs, pension funds, investing in, in more diverse teams and VCs that have more diverse teams. And I'd love to know from your perspective as an angel investor and really being on the ground level, and since you're involved in the company at a very early stage, have you seen an, an increase in the amount of women get, getting funded and more seen like this funnel 
uh, kind of swell and, and actually develop? Yeah, I think I have. And I'm going to talk specifically about New York because that's where I'm based and that's my network. But I there are more women angels. There are more angels that are funding women in New York than, let's say, 10 years ago. Um, there are also more female founders, right, um, who are actually out there looking for capital. So I think I think we're starting to see at those early stages, the kind of pre-seed seed, there are a lot, uh, I think there, I wish we had stats on this because I, I couldn't find any stats, but um, I do think there are the very early stages we're seeing more funding happen. I guarantee that it's probably, you know, still a fraction of what male founders get, but we're starting to see more. I and I and I think we're starting to see more even micro funds focus on women founders at the earliest stages. So at least in New York. So that I think has been really great. I think where we I think where the bar has not, I mean, the bar has not risen in VC. In fact, in COVID, it's gotten worse. I think it used to be 2% of all VC dollars go to women. Now it's like a little bit less than 2%, right? So we're, we're not really making progress on, from an institutional money standpoint. And I think there's, there's kind of a barrier when you get to kind of maybe series A and beyond where you'll, you'll see com- early stage companies get funded and then who are you know fem- female or underrepresented founders and and they're not necessarily getting to those next levels. So, you know, I, I agree that it really has to start at the top. It has to start with the LPs. It has to start with the teams at at venture capital companies. But at least the good news is we're getting a little more funding at those very earliest stages to women. Yeah, I mean that's that's fascinating in terms of what the effects have um, in COVID and the negative effects that it has. Um, unfortunately, very unfortunately, um, uh, but also you seen um, over the past ten years since you're based in New York, you obviously know that ecosystem extremely well, and you've seen a bit of the uh, bit, bit of the rise. Still, it's still a super small fraction, but um, a bit of a rise there. But I'm I'm just always curious to see on the ground level what's actually you know happening. Um, and, and, and if there is a change that's happening. So that's, it's very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing. What, what would you say is the one thing in venture capital that you would like to change? Warm intros and networked base intros, you know, like, as you said, I, I focus on female underrepresented founders, and those are the people who tend not to have the networks, the Stanford, Harvard, whatever networks, the Ivy League networks that get them into a lot of VCs. And when a lot of these VCs are asking for warm intros, I think it's really challenging. You just can't break in. It's like a, it's a structural problem. Um, and I think there are some great there are some great firms that are now saying like you can, you know. Well, you can send in a cold email, you know, you don't need the warm intro, but it's such a small fraction of the total. Um, I think that, I think structurally that has to change. Frankly, from the VC's perspective, you don't want to be only investing in certain networks, right? You want to broaden those networks. You want to make sure that you're seeing the best of the best out there. So I think that's something that we're starting to hear more about. Um, Certainly there's more conversation about it on Twitter, but it would be so great if there if there was a more, you know, there was a merit based way to to kind of have that top of the funnel for VC really be open to all. I totally totally agree. I mean, I think warm introductions it, it almost implies like a difference between the haves and the have nots, in my opinion. Um, with because uh, you need a warm introduction or you already have 
or if you or if you have a warm introduction, it means you're already part of a network per se. And for those people that uh, maybe aren't part of a network, maybe don't know VCs, maybe don't know um, investors, um, how do you actually get in when when everyone's requiring a warm introduction? So, what's one book that impacted you personally, and one book that impacted you professionally? So, I found this question really hard. I was like, I have 8 million books. Um, how long do we have to talk about this? Okay, so I'm gonna go with some more recency bias on this one. Recently, personally, I read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. I don't know if you've read it, but if you haven't read it, you must read it. I have not read it, but I've heard about it. Even if you don't have time to read it, there's a podcast where she talks about it and you'll get all the highlights. It's totally worth reading. It really made me rethink um, just the way our country has been set up, you know, as we talk about underrepresented founders, right? Um, for underrepresented um, groups, particularly um, Black people in the US, and kind of how the system structurally has been um, created, literally created on purpose, and how that still affects us today. And, and, and Warm Intros is a great way um, to explain how structurally this system continues to to really divide us. Um, so I thought it was fascinating. It was a different way of looking at um, kind of the history of our country. So it's been a book that I've been thinking about for a long time since I read it. Professionally, I was reading a book called Invisible Influence by Jonah Berger. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have not heard of Invisible Influence, so I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. It's a book really that's kind of about social influence and he's a professor that it's kind of a psychology book, which sort of makes sense since I really like to understand why people buy things. And it's all about how you're influenced by others in all kinds of ways that you don't even realize things that are hardwired into us, things that we do without sub subconsciously, unconsciously. There's a really interesting part um, of the book called Not If They're Doing It, which is all, which includes many, many brand examples and marketing examples of how marketing messages help social help create sort of social influence circles and how you are influenced not just because of a message directed at you but what it means about the in group that you're thinking about yourself in and and the out group of people who are not like you and how you kind of want to be similar to everybody but also uniquely different um and it's actually fascinating there are some great examples about like for example um abercrombie and fitch and how you know it is definitely at least it was definitely a certain lifestyle of you know this very sort of preppy waspy new englandy look and how when other groups started wearing that brand the brand didn't want them to wear it because it signals something to their original con consumer saying oh this is not for us anymore this is for somebody else and i've been thinking a lot about this um thinking about this book in the context of early stage brands and how early stage brands can use those same kind of social influence markers and language to really create brands that have fans. And, and, and you know, we talk about community-based brands all the time now, like that's like the hottest thing. And how do you do that? Well, this book gives a lot of great insight into how you might think about doing that for your own brand. First of all, both books sound Really, really interesting and fascinating. I definitely need to read both of them for different reasons. They're just both sound really, really interesting. So my last question for you is what's what's the best piece of advice that, that you've received? 
So I had a boss uh, when I was in investment banking who would always say, you know, it's a long life and a small world. And I didn't understand what that meant. I mean, I was like 23 years old. I'm like, well, whatever. I don't know. I don't get it. And looking back, yes, it's a long life in a small world. You don't burn your bridges. You, no matter how angry you are, maybe at your boss or your coworkers, everybody is interconnected. You will see them again in different contexts. Um, keeping in mind that the problems of today, um, with particularly with people and networks, are not going to be the problems of tomorrow. And those people may turn into, you know, your reference checks, your, you know, future employees, future employers is something to really keep in mind, particularly, uh, particularly in investment banking, which was, you know, very much like a, you know, doggy dog kind of place. Um, it was some great advice just to remember it is a small world and a long life. That's an excellent piece of advice. And I completely agree. Sabna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was wonderful. And there you have it. Such a pleasure speaking with Sapna. Sapna, thank you so much for coming on the show. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Red Giraffe. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.